Uh, we're going to be jumping back into Romans chapter 11 uh, this morning. We started 11 last week. We're going to be picking up with verse 11 and going through verse 24 this morning. So let me read those before I get off track. I say then, they did not stumble, so as to, to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression be riches for the world and their failure be riches for the Gentiles, how much more will the fulfillment be? But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, and so much then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. And if their rejection to be uh, the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And if the first piece of, of dough be holy, the lump is also. And if the root be holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partakers with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches." But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off, so I might be, uh, be grafted in. Quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those uh, who fell. Severity, uh, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. For they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more shall these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Well, this is a continuation of an argument that the apostle started all the way back in Romans chapter 8, and it's just some things I would highlight this morning that we've talked about over these weeks, and, and one of those is it becomes clear when you, you read the scriptures that God's intention never was to save all Israelites. Scripture proves that. Uh, it's also very clear from the Old Testament scriptures that it wasn't God's intention all along to include some of the Gentiles into those who would be saved. Uh, not an afterthought, not something that God came up after he had suffered such rejection by so many of the Jews that he turned to the Gentiles. It was his plan all along, his intention all along. One of the things, or one of the complaints that you will hear lodged very often against people who are of the Reformed Christian faith is that it sounds to me like you're kind of arrogant and proud. Unfortunately, I think sometimes 
they maybe have some ground for saying that because I have known some reformed people who have come across as being very arrogant and very proud. That's not God's intention for us. What I would say to you is the exact opposite ought to be the truth. It ought to be the reality. Being that it is a very sobering thing to consider the fact that out of all of humanity, God has determined to save you. He did it back in the very beginning, and he's done absolutely necessary, uh, everything necessary to do that. That ought to humble the mess out of us. It should not make us proud and puffed up uh, in any way or, or measure at all. We should be greatly humbled because of it. Remember that next time someone says something to you. If you believe that, then it sounds to me like you're just being very arrogant and prideful. And I want to remind us this morning, if we keep things in context with the book of Romans, you need to understand that you're elected to salvation. It's not because you're better. It's not because you're greater. It's because you're nicer and because you're better looking because of anything that is apparent to anybody. It's because God has determined to do it, period. Certainly has his reasons, but we don't know what they are. We may never, we probably never will know what they are. But this is what Paul has been arguing all along. That, he is, that God has set apart from all of eternity a particular group of people that he would, he would bring to himself and do everything necessary to make that happen. We never know who those people are. Think about the people you witness to. There's certain people maybe that you've witnessed to. It's very easy to talk with them about Christianity. How many times have you thought something like, so-and-so is such a nice person already. Boy, they would really make a good Christian. That's the person I need to witness to. And it's easy to take those avenues because some people really are a lot easier to talk to when it comes to matters of religion. Other people are not. But we can't let things like that lead us. We need to take advantage of every opportunity that God gives us and pray that God will give us the words to say that will be meaningful and maybe life-changing for those particular people. But we know this. We can't convert anybody. We don't have the wherewithal. We don't have the words to say. We don't have, have the ability to convert anybody. Only God's Spirit can do that. Only God's Spirit can breathe life into someone who is otherwise dead to God. Salvation is in his hands, in his hands exclusively. So let me ask you something. Knowing that you're saved, does it make you prideful or does it humble you? Just remember this, if God had not elected particular people to salvation, no one would have been saved, not a single one. 
that every one of us is a sinner. Every one of us has earned a place in hell. God's eternal judgment. And only by doing what God has done has anyone been saved. And apart from it, it never would have happened. They're not, Jesus would have come and done what he did uh, and, and, and ascended back into heaven and not one person would benefit from it. That is how hard the human heart is in its natural state against God. If you love God this morning, you love God because God has taken your dead heart and breathed life into it. Not because you're better than other people in any way, shape, or form. Well, we began considering this last week that, that Paul was a Jew. He was an Israelite. He has a special place in his heart for his people. And we know this, that when Paul went out on the mission field, he had a practice. And the practice was this, wherever he went, he went to the Jews first. And only after they rejected his message did he turn to the Gentiles. He did that all through his ministry. Think about the ministry of Jesus. Were the multitudes converted to Christianity through the ministry of Jesus directly? I mean, did Jesus go out and about preaching all around the promised land? And everywhere he went, there were masses and masses of people who converted to Christianity, left their Judaism behind, and they converted to Christianity, and they followed Jesus, and they, and, and, and they lived according to what Jesus had taught and what he told them. Is that the picture we get from Scripture? That multitudes of the Jews came to faith in Christ directly through his ministry? The answer to that is a definite no. Were there some, however, who did? Yes. The apostles only being some of them. The most amazing thing is this, is Israel had been waiting for that Messiah for, for a couple of thousand years at that point. And the crazy thing is this, is they so much misunderstood who the Messiah was and what he was actually going to do, that it just passed right by most of them. But we do know that there were some who came to faith directly through the ministry of Jesus. We also know this, that once Jesus left, he had commissioned the apostles to continue his ministry in Jerusalem and Judea and to the remotest part in Samaria and to the remotest parts of the world. Remember that? Remember the commission of the apostle Paul given to him? To be more than anything else, an apostle to the Gentiles. But you know what else it says? It says also to the sons of Israel. Paul ministered to all. Not just Gentiles. Remember the vision that Peter had. That the promises of God were to go forth to the Gentiles.
You study the Old Testament, you find that, that Israel very often had a real hard heart. I mean, really. Uh, what did they do to the prophets? They persecuted the prophets over and over again. Isaiah and Jeremiah, all these guys were persecuted because they brought the message of God. Persecuted by their own people. If you're familiar with the Bread of Life discourse, John chapter 13, it, it, you know, it ends after these, these, all these people have been fed out of just nothing. A little bit of bread and a few fish. And thousands of people are fed by Jesus. One of the most remarkable things, if you read the Gospel of John, is immediately after that it says a lot of people because of the things he, were, he was saying were very hard, a lot of his disciples stopped following him. I mean, if we, if we actually tried to grade Jesus' ministry specifically to that group of people in that particular point in time, most people would look at it and say, well, it really was not all that successful. Same thing might be true if you talk about some of the apostles. But it wasn't until Christ ascended back into heaven that there was a much greater outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You think about Pentecost, immediately on the heels of Pentecost, literally thousands of people, principally and primarily Jews, were converted to the faith. Very often, you find presented in the Old Testament the concept of the remnant. That there was a remnant from Israel that ultimately would be saved. A rem what is a remnant? You ladies that so, what does the term remnant mean? It means a little leftover piece, right? Not big enough to hardly do anything with, but hopefully you might be able to use it for something. What we see over and over again from the scriptures is that it's a, it's a remnant, it's a small part of the whole. And we've talked about this too as we've gone through Romans, and that is there's a sense in which there's a New Testament equivalent of Old Testament Israel compared to uh, or, or, or those who were believers within Old Testament Israel. And just remember, he, Paul just recently used the example of Elijah, that there were 7,000 out of 450,000 estimated who actually were true followers in the Old Testament during the time of Elijah. God has sustained that remnant all along. To apply this directly to the New Testament church today, you'd have to say this. That the church in general, the church, what we call the visible church, as we see the church, which is all people gathered together in the name of Christ, as being the church in the world. But we know this. We know that there's only a remnant 
that are actually saved. That just because someone claims that they are a Christian doesn't necessarily mean that they are because the reality is this. If you start talking to people who claim to be Christian, sometimes they don't even understand what it means to be a Christian. From a biblical sense, very often they think it's just have some association with a church. I was, or I was baptized when I was 10 years old, therefore I'm a Christian. It doesn't matter how I've lived my life since then. I mean, how many people do you know that look upon Christ as one thing, and that is their ticket to heaven, and that's it? They don't acknowledge him as Lord. They don't see him as Lord. They live a life that is very similar, almost, almost identical, as you would find the average person out in the world living. They do the same things they do. They say the same things that they say. They spend their money the same way that they do. The gospel has been blurred a lot by worldly thinking in, well, over the centuries and even to a great deal in the last century. The gospel saves and only the gospel saves. Nothing else will do. Jesus must be both Savior and Lord. Not just one or the other. He must be both. What Paul is alluding to here is this idea that one of the things that God seems to be doing is this, is saving Gentiles in order to create envy slash jealousy in Jewish people. Now that's kind of an amazing thing. In other words, one of the things he's saying here very clearly is this is God is using the Gentiles now to make the Jews jealous. That maybe through that jealousy, they would come to the truth of salvation. I mean, Paul has a great hope for the Jewish people still as he's writing this letter. There are a lot of people who believe this. Remember when we were studying through Revelation, we talked about the millennial views and we talked about something called post-millennialism. That there are people who believe, Christians who believe, theologians who believe that, that immediately before the second coming of Christ, there's going to be a mass conversion that takes place in the world, that, 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 that thousands, maybe millions of people are going to come to faith in Christ just before he comes. That there is some biblical ground for that. The passage that we're reading now lends hope to the idea that immediately before Christ comes, that's going to happen, and a lot of those people are going to be Jewish people. Now, jealousy is not something we usually think too much about to be used as a motivational thing, to provoke people to jealousy. But let me just say this this morning. I think even the best of parents do it on occasion. 
We do it with our children. Sometimes we make one of our children jealous of another one by the things that we say about them, hoping that they'll behave more like they do. You ever done that? Some people would say that Paul was really down on Jewish people, as you need to understand he wasn't. His heart was first and foremost for the Jewish people because they were his people. What about this? Is there anything about your faith? Is there anything about what other people hear you say and what, what people see you do that would cause them to be jealous of you? So that it would become apparent to them that, they, that you have something they don't, which is desirable to have. Most of you know that I became a Christian in my early 30s. And a lot of it had to do with the witness of my wife and my sister-in-law and her husband. And two or three people that I had been close friends with for years. And I struggled with this whole thing for quite a while. I mean, my conversations usually began with those people as I will listen to what you have to say, but don't you think for one minute that I'm going to be convinced very easily that you're right and I'm wrong. But there came a time when I began to see and I began to realize these people know something I don't know. These people have something I don't have. And I want it. Are there people in your life that look upon you in that light? That are jealous of you because of what you've got. And they don't. I mean, we don't think about jealousy as a very good motor avail. Let me tell you, I'm standing here this morning before you for a lot of reasons, and one of those is jealousy pushed me toward Christ. We are in a crisis in our land. And let me tell you something. <laughs> crisis is very often the thing that will get people's attention like nothing else will. There are people today that have had a lot of time to spend by themselves. 
and certainly it's not true of everyone, but I would imagine that there have been people that have been thinking more and more about this Christianity stuff because I heard so somebody say this about that, and you know, I look at Past Pie Church on Sunday morning that's up the street, and there's always a bunch of cars there, and, uh, and this, that, and the other, and, and, and maybe these people really do know something that I don't know, or maybe those people really know someone that I don't know. Maybe they got something that I really want to have. You know, crises like these have the potential of creating and putting people in a position where they're going to be a lot more sensitive and willing to listen to your message. I mean, we've all been in a situation we've never been in in our whole lifetime. God created this. It hasn't come apart from him. And he's got his purposes for it. And let me tell you, one of the purposes of it is this, is, is through this crisis, he is going to bring people to himself. Because people today are realizing they've got no place to turn to. They have no, they have no hope in anything. Why do we think people are clinging so desperately to life? Debbie ministers, she's a, she's a nurse in hospice. Her patients have basically two weeks to live. She's confronted with this stuff all the time, so we need to pray for our sister. Can you imagine doing what she does? It's got to be heart-wrenching, a lot. We need to be praying for her. It surprised even her how these people in that situation are freaking out that they're going to get this virus. Isn't that ridiculous? But isn't that a measure of just how afraid people are of death? A lot of what's going on out there today is a result of that. They hear the word death and they freak out because they believe that it's the end. They believe there's nothing beyond it. Their situation is hopeless. Very good time for the gospel of Jesus Christ to go forward with power and might. It's not a time for the church to be silent. It's not a time for the church to be quiet. It's the time for the church to demonstrate and say, we've got something that you really ought to have that you really ought to want and let me tell you unless they see a difference in us a difference in the way we respond to it compared to the average person out on the street we can say whatever we want to and they're not going to listen to us we've got to practice what we preach we have to and until we do that, we don't have any reason to believe anybody is going to take anything we say with a grain of salt. I always wonder this. What will heaven really be like? 
the conclusions I come to is this is basically, I don't know, but I know it's going to be so really, really good that if I could get there right now, I would jump at the opportunity. And I would never want to leave. And when I do funerals for people that I'm very, very convinced of their salvation, things are very different than if it's someone that I don't know at all and, or, or have some reason to, to wonder whether they're saved or not. Paradise is how Jesus describes it. That's what we have to look forward to. No more coronavirus. No more death. Ever. Into eternity. Life. On the scale of eternity, the span of your lifetime is a little dot. <laughs> it's nothing. Life in this world is what we're talking about. But he's promised us eternal life in paradise. Sometimes uh, you, you might wonder who, who you know you're going to actually find in heaven. You know, I've heard people say, you know, uh, I know I'm, I'm passing away very soon, and you know, I know I'm on my deathbed or or whatever. But I'm looking forward to seeing so and so and so and so and so and so and uh, and all of that. Really, what I believe is this: is that when we get to heaven, we're really going to be surprised by some of the people that are there. Could be, however, that we're also surprised at some people who are not. I mean, this is one of those God things. It's all up to Him. Absolutely, completely. In its entirety. I wish I could describe it to you this morning. I can't. Human words don't come close to, to, there's no way in human language that we can, we can describe what the new heavens and the new earth will be. The only thing we know is this. Is this going to be unbelievably good? It's going to be unbelievably grand. It's going to be unbelievably great. So much those things that we can't even begin to imagine. If we really saw it, you and I would run to it as quick as we could. When I do those, those funeral services for believers, I always kind of say this. I say, you know, so-and-so uh, is now with the Lord. And let me tell you something. If they were given the opportunity to come back here, they would say, no way. Why would I ever do that? Why would I even think about doing that? Leave this place to go back to that place? You've got to be kidding me. 
that's our home. Now. Not just future, but now. We are aliens in a foreign land. This is no longer, this world is no longer our home. Our home is with Jesus. And we need to look forward with great delight and joy in our homecoming. There's a sense that when we do funerals for brothers and sisters in Christ, that we're, not, we're, we're doing a celebration. We call them a celebration of life. We're celebrating not just the life they've lived here, but the life they have now. That is far better, far greater. Unimaginable. So is there going to be this mass conversion of people right before the second coming of Christ? Perhaps a mass conversion of the Jews immediately before the coming of Christ? It very well could be. I think sometimes think, people think Jesus is going to come back when things get really the worst. When things in the world have, have degraded to the point that it's just it's the worst it's ever been. That's when Jesus is going to come back. It could be. But I don't think that's what the Bible teaches us. And just remember as we study the book of Revelation, the countless multitudes gathered in the heavenly places around that throne, worshiping God. Some of them, even as we speak, have a Jewish heritage. Some of them don't have a drop of Abraham's blood in their body. But they have the faith of Abraham. See, this is what Paul has been arguing all along, and that God has been sending apart a people unto himself all along. And it's not the blood of Abraham that's important. It's the faith of Abraham. We are brothers and sisters, not necessarily in blood. We are brothers and sisters in Christ by our common faith in him. That is what joins us all together. So may we rejoice in it. May we pray and may we hope for the salvation of those people around us. May we witness to them, not just in what we say, but in what we do. May we be light in the darkness. May we be salt in the earth. That is our mission until we pass from this world or Christ comes. And it's true for all of us. And let me tell you something. If we really understand and we really enjoy what Christ has given to us, we will not be silent because we cannot be silent.